I still believe in that three-legged stool, and I still think that's what we're about. I do think that the physical activity side of it has become bigger um, from when I started teaching, and I certainly uh, promote more and push more lifetime activity and a life of physical activity and and think that getting kids active is much more important than getting them fit. Um, I think fitness is something that comes after you're physically active. Um, and we always do it the other way around. We throw a bunch of kids into PE and we work them out and tell them they're not fit and then wonder why they grow up not being active. And I'm the other way around. I think you get them active and tell them, wow, you can move. And then if they get hooked, then I can get them on fitness. You're listening to the Run Your Life Podcast with host Andy Vasily. Hi, everybody. Welcome to my Run Your Life Podcast series. And as always... I want to thank you for your time and energy and for tuning into any episode that you can. The whole idea behind this podcast series is to interview people from the world of education and beyond who strive for both personal and professional excellence in their life through their chosen field, whatever that field may be. Over the past several months, I've returned back to my very special niche of physical education and have recorded a number of episodes uh, related to the field of physical education and health. And I've had a few guests on over the past uh, number of weeks that have been on my show already. Some have been on three times now. But the discussions that we're having are very rich and robust around the idea of what does physical activity really mean and what role does physical activity, sport, and exercise play in a person's life. As well, we dive deeply into discussions related to professional growth and what it takes to really, I, I guess, continue to grow and learn and not be stagnant within our profession. So in today's episode, I have my good friend, Dr. Aaron Beatley back on the show and a first-time guest who is actually Dr. Aaron Beatley's mentor, uh, Dr. Bob Pangrazy. So it was great to have them both on the show to really share the work that they've been doing over the past couple decades. Uh, in particular, they have co-authored a book called Dynamic Physical Education for Elementary School Children. I think they're in their either 19th or 20th edition right now. Uh, but we dive deeply into a discussion about the textbook itself, and I really wanted, I was curious about um, asking them to describe how they are continually refining the textbook when a new edition comes out, how they're refining their vision and their learning, and how that is reflected in new editions of the textbook. But beyond that, we talk about lots of different things related to the profession. We talk about the role of social media in professional growth. Uh, we talk about specific strategies that teachers can apply that will help them to really grow and to reflect on their own work. But it really was a pleasure to have Aaron and Bob on the show. And I've been meaning to have Bob on the show for a number of years, but uh, it was really nice to meet him in person, even though it was on Zoom. It was nice to meet him in person, have a conversation with him before we hit record, and then continue the discussion after we stopped recording this episode. So I'm really looking forward to having them both on the show again one day. But uh, I hope you find value in this discussion if you're a physical education teacher. Uh, I think it was really meaningful. So with that, let's jump right into my discussion with Dr. Aaron Beatley and Dr. Bob Pangrazy. Okay. Hello, Bob and Aaron. I want to thank you very much for taking the time to be on the show. Aaron, you were just on the show two weekends ago and you're back on again. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Uh, but Bob, I was just saying before we hit record, it's, it's the first time you and I have actually met. I've known your work. I've known about you. I've seen 
Uh, I saw the keynote speech that you did for Artie Kamia at the PE Institute in 2014, I think. Um, I, I was lucky enough to the following year to do a keynote speech for Artie. And I remember watching your keynote speech and, and having met Aaron, I know that you two have worked closely over the years. So um, to both of you and, and Bob, I want to really thank you for taking the time to be on the show today. Oh, my pleasure, Andy. Good to, good to see you as well. And always good to be on with uh, Aaron. So uh, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, excellent. So we'll just start with some introductions. Um, so just a basic introduction, name, um, anything you want about family, work, you know, just what, what you want the listeners to know about you. So Aaron, we'll start with you. You just, um, you just fill us in with the details. My name is Aaron Beatley. Um, I am currently a professor at the University of Kentucky. Um, my primary responsibilities there related to physical education or trained PE teachers. Um, I also conduct some research on physical activity in students and youth, and then I work with schools to promote physical activity, and then I have the great fortune of writing books with, with Bob, and um, I am married to Heather Irwin. Some of you may know her. She's a professor as well in physical education and helps write the secondary version of our elementary textbook, and we have four awesome teenage daughters, two 14-year-olds and two 12-year-olds. That I've, I've seen pictures of over the years, and they're, they're getting so much older. Yeah, they're, uh, they're, they're not outgrowing me, but they're outgrowing Heather, so that's, yeah. that's where we're heading. Yeah, awesome. And Bob? Yeah, um, I started teaching uh, in this business as a fifth grade teacher and taught a little kindergarten and went into elementary physical education, taught in public schools for a number of years and was a professor at Arizona State University for 32 years. And then I've been an educational consultant for Gopher for 16 years. So I think this is uh, my 55th year in education, so I've had a long career in education, and uh, I enjoy it. And yes, I have a family, but they have families as well. Um, uh, my son, I, you know, my, my children are not young children, as you might guess with my age. My son is 58, and he lives in London and is a consultant there. And uh, my daughter is 56, and uh, uh she lives in, in uh, Washington State. We have uh, a grandson by her and uh, five granddaughters by my son. So um, I've had a nice, nice career in education, and I continue to be as excited about education and teaching today um, as I was the day I started. I'm also, uh, my wife, Deb, is the supervisor of physical education for the Mesa Public Schools, which is the largest school district in Arizona, and she has 80 elementary PE teachers she's responsible for. So um, a whole lot of, you know, of what I say and do and live uh, is because of her and her knowledge as well. Yeah, that's a great story. And and I know both of you, you know, being being researchers and in that academic world, yet still grounded in the trenches of teaching, it's constant learning over the years, right? And and constantly refining what we know. And then once we we think we we know what we know, we actually know I know we need to know more. And Bob, what I want to ask you is a question that I asked Aaron a couple of weeks ago, uh, which is uh I used to think teaching PE was, and then I now think teaching PE is. And this is all based on your learning and how your learning has changed and all of the new information that's out there. But I want to start, Bob, with you just kind of talking about what you used to think teaching PE was, and then we'll shift gears into what you now think it is based on your learning. Well, let me let me talk about the physical education profession to set the framework. Um, I, I I have always, when I started, I, I was fortunate to be uh, taught and co-authored with a fellow named Vic Dower, who really set me on my way. Believed in what I had to say. Thought I had a, a lot of of things. I wasn't sure about my writing ability and my knowledge and, and he believed in me. And, you know, we all need mentors. We all need someone to help us uh, believe and learn who we are. Um, but I always remember him talking about the triangle of fitness, physical activity, 
uh, and skill development. And that was the, the, the three-legged stool that physical education sat on. So when you ask me that question, I have to tell you that uh, what I believed when I was in uh, undergrad school and what I graduated with in, in 66 um, hasn't changed all that much, Andy. Um, I would tell you that I still believe in that three-legged stool, and I still think that's what we're about. I do think that the physical activity side of it has become bigger um, from when I started teaching, and I certainly uh, promote more and push more lifetime activity and a life of physical activity and and think that getting kids active is much more important than getting them fit. Um, I think fitness is something that comes after you're physically active. Um, and we always do it the other way around. We throw a bunch of kids into PE and we work them out and tell them they're not fit and then wonder why they grow up not being active. And I'm the other way around. I think you get them active and tell them, wow, you can move. And then if they get hooked, then I can get them on fitness. So one of the things that has changed in my own thinking over that lifespan is that fitness is still terribly important. And I live a life of fitness. I, I spend a whole lot of time in my life and have forever being fit. And I still think fitness is important. But if I had, if you forced me to pick one part of that triangle, I'd pick physical activity as the most important. And when I was an undergrad and, and a graduate in my early years of teaching, I worked the devil out of kids. I just thought fitness was the end all. That was the time when the President's Council's fitness test came down and became important. Um, and President Kennedy said, you know, the soldiers aren't fit. We need to be fit. And, and so, man, I was all fitness. So you can imagine Imagine at 25 years of age, I sucked it all in and believed it all, and I pushed the devil out of kids. Um, and I think I did it in a humane way, but I look back on it now, you know, I probably could have done things differently. So in my mind, the biggest change I've made personally over that uh, um, career is to change from less on the fitness end of it and more on the physical activity. Now, I still think skills plays a role in all of that, and I still think we need to teach. Um, I, I don't think being fit, some people take getting kids active for a lifetime and they say, oh, well, all you do is roll out the ball and they're active, so that must be what you mean, and that isn't what I mean at all. If you look at my books, if you look at my career, uh, I'm, I'm a skill teacher because I think skills are the tools that people use to be active in many cases. Um, so um, I think one of the things that's bothered me about the profession over the years, Andy, is that about every three years, and that's one of the things I've talked about in a lot of my presentations, we change focus. Um, our professional organizations one year will say, well, now we need to work on movement education. Well, no, let's go to fitness. Well, no, let's go to lifetime activity. Well, no, let's go to SEL. And poor old teachers have no idea where they should be going and what they're about. So, Aaron, you might want to jump in on that if you want. And So my background, what I used to think is um, I got into this field because by golly, I was going to get every kid fit. And that was my objective. And, and like Bob said, everybody needs a great mentor And his name. His name was Vic Dower. Mine's name was Bob Pangrazy. And I met Bob at a workshop while I was getting my master's degree and trying to figure out how to get kids fit. And I thought, as I was watching him present, I said, that's what I want to do with the rest of my life. Cause he was just working with teachers. It was unbelievable. And then I saw him present about a paper that he had written in 92 about fitness. And I thought, man, my thesis isn't going to be worth the paper it's written on, but I was, I was already into it. So, but I, I ended up working with Bob and, and, and that started me on the role of changing my perspective into this, as, as you heard Bob say, and working with Bob for how many every years it's been now, I think, it, I think it's 20, Bob. I'm sorry yeah, about that. Too, yeah. um, so, um, but the, the idea that, that 
as a field, I think that we're starting to move towards physical activity, I think is, is encouraging. And that's where my thinking has led and the ways to get kids more active in those, as Bob alluded to, that you can't just do it to them. That's not the way to motivate any human being on any behavior, let alone physical activity. So I think that's kind of where my perspective has changed from get them fit to get them to love movement. And for all the reasons that are out there for movement, it's not just health movement. Health, I mean, there's lots of reasons to be active. And I think that's where my thinking has, has evolved to. And that's just a summary to just to keep it short since I just talked about it last week. So what I love here is that, and Bob, when you say fitness and physical activity and skill development is the triangle and that hasn't changed, that's, that's great. And that's exactly what many physical educators believe is most important. And having had Scott Kretschmer on the podcast last weekend, you know, Scott's, you know, 78, 79, and, and he still talks about this idea that even though his body is kind of glassing over, as he says, he's all about keeping his playgrounds alive, right? And he wants to keep his playgrounds alive as long as possible. And in keeping his playgrounds alive, he, the byproduct of that is that right now he's in the best shape that he's been in in years because of COVID, because he's been at home and ice in self-isolation. So he's riding the bike nonstop 30, 40 miles a day. So it's this beautiful triangle of uh, interconnected triangle where you, you really, when you do it right, you can't have one without the other because if you're really into the physical activity, fitness is a byproduct and then you're intrinsically motivated to, to work on the, the skills required to keep you active, right? So th- it's this inter, interconnected, interwoven triangle that is so important in our field. So what resonates with you uh, in regards to that, Bob, that these things are really interwoven and, and they're not in isolation. So when the teacher gets it right, they can really create change. Well, you said a mouthful. They are connected, first of all. And part of the problem with what we've done in this business and we do it in all of education. It isn't just physical education, but we jump on a a new item, SEL, um, fitness, activity, and we, we keep jumping on a bandwagon for one thing and we pull it out and we isolate it and we take it out of context Mm -hmm. and then we abuse it. Okay. Then people think, Oh, well, PE must be SEL. And I'll just make it all SEL or PE must be all fitness. So I'll just throw out everything else and just teach fitness. And I think you said it beautifully. They are interconnected and they, they all are a part. And what we have to do is try to fit those, depending on the age of the person we're teaching, fit those pieces together in the proper order. And I think you move first, you learn a few skills you learn a little fitness and you see who you are in between the three of those, the way those work, you can choose to go in the direction you want. In other words, there's a lot of freedom for the learner to pick up on what they do. The vast majority of people will be lifetime activity people if they choose to do anything in their life. And 90% of them will walk. And so, you know, if we can liven up the experience of moving and being alive and the good feeling you get out of that, and still focus on those three interchangeable parts, then I think we have a profession. Here's what bothers me, Um, Andy, is if we take math and we say, okay, you know, in math, I think think fractions is really the most important part of of math. So we're only going to teach fractions, um, but we're not going to teach this other part of math. It's, it's, It's less important, so we're not going to do that. And my gosh, you know, it's it's like a kid saying, well, I don't like fractions, so I'm not going to do it. Well, then what are they going to do if that's what you focused on? In other words, you can't fracture the profession and we fracture the profession all the time. And it's led by our professional organizations because they want to have something new to sell their clientele. I get that. That's you know, that's supply and demand. That's that's enterprise. I get that. But they also have to remember that's what really is important in the long run is the discipline of physical education, that, that core of what we are. And when we 
look as it not being one part being less important than another, we run into a lot of problems because that's like saying learning fractions is less is more important than learning to add and subtract. It, it can't be. And and what I appreciate about what you're saying, Bob, and Aaron, I have a question for you, but what I just want to, what I hear in the way you just described that, uh, Bob, is that kids are creating their own personal narratives based on this experience in, in physical education. And once, you know, that triangle kicks into gear and and they're really experiencing the positive impact of physical activity and fitness and skill development, they're creating their own unique personal narratives, which will then really kick them into uh, lifetime movement, right? So it, it is this idea of personal narratives being created, and, and I love that. And it might be CrossFit for, for one person. Uh, they get to university and they love CrossFit. For another person, it might be joining a cycling group and staying active through cycling, you know? So, but the options are open to them because they've experienced that triangle, that beautiful triangle of fitness and physical activity and skill development. So Aaron, based on, you know, you've worked with Bob a long time. And when you think about what you used to think teaching PE was and what you now think it is, how is that reflected? Because in my hands, gentlemen, the listeners can't see this. I have a very heavy textbook. <laughs> and, and That's Bob's uh, fault, not mine. Yeah. <laughs> but this, in this textbook, this was actually both of you, this is a signed textbook by both of you that Aaron sent to me when I was working in China. Um, but what I want to ask you is, how is your current learning um, reflected in new editions of the textbook as, it, as they come out every three years? Um, I, I think with... With respect to, to my, Bob probably can address this a little bit better having been involved in this longer, but um, it, it has evolved. It's tough with a book. And one of the first things Bob ever told me was that to not get into, because of what he just said, to not get in onto the, the, the next sexy topic. That wasn't Bob's words, those are my words. But the next topic on what the field is pushing for, because it, when, you, when you work in three-year cycles, you run the chance of being behind. So there's that mix of, of staying on the cutting edge, but not getting too far on the edge because then you take the chance of falling off. A great example of this is we were told and we worked that the field in special ed was changing to unique needs as opposed to special needs. So me being the young, dumb author that I am, and Bob let me do it, was to change that over to unique needs. Well, that didn't go over and it's still special needs. So it's really hard to stay cutting edge. So having said that, I think, and, and again, Bob has given me so much leeway and so much ability to make these decisions, just as he talked about with Vic Dower. And it takes those, and I'm learning, it takes little steps to lead the field in a direction of, and if you look over the course of the DPE books, that it's shifted more, talked about adding pedometers and those, you know, we took our time adding pedometers, but we added pedometers and, and added classroom breaks and added some content that I think start showing that we're leading more towards physical activity, more towards um, promotion of physical activity. And I think that's the best way to describe that. Would you agree to Bob that it's, it's a slow go as far as changing what you do in a book and you've had obviously. Yeah, more no, no, I think I keep, keep going. I think you're right on. I think it, it just takes time and, and it's not because you're dealing, you know, you're, you're giving information to professors that are, having to change their content and their courses and their thinking and trying to lead that um, in a manner that is palatable to students. And I know one of the things that you've suggested we're going to talk about in the future, I think one of the things that we have in this, um, we have in the most recent edition, the 19th edition, started to talk more about technology and students' use of, or future teachers' use of technology and how to incorporate that and make them educated consumers because as we move forward, I think that's something we have to do. So it's it's not as big as steps as, as, as you know, you maybe would like, but it does take those steps to lead in the right, in, in a, what we think is the right direction. And I think that's reflected in the book over the years. I mean, I have, 
I'm looking up here. The, the earliest edition, I have the first edition as well as obviously the 19th edition. And if you look, I mean, it's a slow change. You could look at each book and think there's no changes in this book at all. But if you look at it, it's the philosophically and little slight changes as Bob alluded to, the foundation is still there, but you know, you change, you remodel a little bit each edition. So how do you bounce those, how do you bounce those ideas off of one another? Bob, this is to be honest, Bob just listens to me. And, yeah, and, I do. And, and, and not, not, the, not as, as listens to me and changes everything based on what I say. He lets me have, I mean, I've got some, has some wild, dumb ideas. And he lets process them and process them and process them. And then we talk to the editors and, and those types of things. But around book writing season, we have lots of conversations back and forth of where we want to go and how we go there. And is that the biggest change? Is that the right change? And it's, and, and he warned me of this when we first wrote a pedometer book together, that writing is the most exhausting thing you will do. And it is exhausting. And first editions are, or first time you write something, it's exhausting. And then when you rewrite it, it's even more exhausting. So you can, it's a, it's a lot of conversation back and forth. And fortunately we've worked with publishers that have had given us a lot of leeway on what we say and what we, what we put in the book. So I think that's been great as well. Let me, let me tag that just a little bit, Andy, and, and tag on first, first of all, let me say that I, I told Aaron a long time ago um, that writing a, a, with a co-author is like marriage. Um, but I, I actually think it's a little easier than marriage maybe. Um, but it's, it still has a lot of the same components. I mean, you get to points where you, you know, there's give and take and that sort of thing. But, uh, I, I, and, and I, I'm so pleased that the way Aaron and I have always worked, I mean, sometimes, you know, I'll say something and, and Aaron will say something in return, and then I think about it for a while. And, okay, I'll change my mind on that or whatever. And some things, as Aaron knows, I'm dead set on. I mean, I, I just don't think this should change. But, but there are two parts of writing to your question that you're asking, Andy, and, and, we, and we can't address it well if we don't address and see that clearly. One is the content of the discipline. But the content of our discipline, and that's what bothers me a little bit about social media. There, there's no concern for the content of our discipline. It's what, here's a great game, let's do this. Here's a rah-rah thing, let's do this. But we lose sight of the curriculum and where we're going and what we're going to teach at the end. So um, maybe that'll help the listeners out there see the difference that we have to have a content that we stand for. And when we don't, we lose hold of our profession. And one of the reasons that PE in the high school weakens over the years is because everybody does their own thing and nobody knows where they're going. And that weakens us because people say, you guys don't stand for anything. We really don't know what you teach. At the end of the day, you want to know that a math teacher is teaching math an English teacher is teaching the content of English. And so um, I think that's how our books have changed. Uh, not so much. A, look, throwing is throwing. You learn how to throw in first grade. You're still learning in as a senior in high school. And the great pitchers in the major leagues are still throwing all year long to try to get more accurate. You never perfect anything in our business. So that doesn't change all that much. All right, enough. I, I think I've beat that. Well, well, one of the things about throwing is, and this, this goes back to uh, technique, is that so I was a quarterback in university for five years. And um, I, I taught myself how to throw. I was a side. They called me the Hungarian gunslinger because my, my, my ethnic background is Hungarian. I used to pull the football out of my holster and throw a sidearm. And I'm 5'10" standing in the pocket not good <laughs> so what do you what do you think what do you think my coaches are going to say to me vastly you got to throw over the top but what i developed was this very unique style that that if if the pocket was in front of me and i couldn't see anything then i just slid to the right or slid to the left and slung it through cracks because i could i could do that i had definitely mastered the basic fundamental throwing motion but it's this idea that everybody's going to do it a little bit differently. So when you talk about skill development and, and the, 
the content of our discipline. What do you have to say about that? That kind of a little bit of creativity with skill development, the Lee Trevino golf swing, the Arnold Palmer golf swing, as opposed to the perfect Tiger Tiger Woods golf swing. So where does that that um, creativity and innovation come in to play in in skill development in PE and how teachers um, teach skills? The uniqueness and the creativity of every individual is the one thing I don't think you can ever take away from any human being, okay? When people worry about creativity, I don't because I think creativity is a huge, strong urge. I think you teach the basics, you teach the fundamentals, you teach all that, but every individual will do it slightly different than somebody else. And we always think we know everything. And, and, and you know, you were talking about being a small 5'10 quarterback. Well, we, we happen to have in, in uh, Arizona the, the number one draft pick last year, who's 5'10 and, and won the Heisman Trophy and had a great year in the NFL last year. And he does exactly what you did. He throws through the cracks and he's very good at it and he's extremely fast. And now everybody's looking for a 5'10 quarterback who can run. So you just were born a little too early. And you're yeah, I was going to say, what happened to you, Vasily? You can't use your 5'10 as an excuse anymore. You might have made it. But Flutie, anyway, Flutie was my boy. <laughs> but just to finish up uh when i was training teachers everybody said oh my god all the teachers all the teachers you train teach the same they teach like you and i said you know you're so far off they're all unique and different creativity can never be legislated out of any human being and i would never want it to be i just don't worry about it because i think what you need to learn first are the fundamentals in your creativity will take care of it and no two human beings are worry about creativity because i think it'll take care of itself i worry more about teaching the fundamentals and then give the youngster space to adapt to who they are and that yeah and, and andy i think this relates a little bit to what you were talking about with the their own individual journey and what bob you give them this platform of these three areas with skills fitness and physical activity they can then that gives them the tools i know andy you and i talked about this years ago that those are the blocks to build. And if we give them those three blocks, they can build something. If they only have one block and they decide they don't like that block, they can't build anything. And you use the Lego analogy. I know in some of your presentations, Andy, and I, and I think that's kind of this idea of giving them our goal as teachers is to give students the blocks to be creative. And then our goal is, is writing this book is to give future teachers the blocks to be creative. And there are some things that are foundational, that you know most teachers need but then there's also this idea of where can they be and, and get their creativity like bob's talking and that's where they have their blocks and they and all we teach them is 101 things to do with it the creativity is, is lost their ability to be creative is lost and Aaron, i'll just i'll just close it up by saying i have never in over 50 years of teaching seen two teachers teach exactly alike ever yeah, and that's that's a good point, and that's the the uniqueness of it, and the the artistic flair to what we do. So, in moving forward, you know, I want to do this this quick little roundtable discussion. Um, I want to use what I what is referred to as the compass points thinking routine. And when we think of our profession, uh, when you think of a compass, there's north, south, east, west. And when we think of our profession. In this case, the sinking routine, the N for North means if we want to continue to improve at what we do and get better, what do we need to know more of? Um, East means what excites, excites us about what's happening right now. South is our current stance or opinion about the profession. And W West is our worries or concerns. So... This is more of a, a quick roundtable, just um, uh, just sharing ideas about where we're at with this. But if we started with the end, Aaron, I'll start with you. So with our profession, in order to keep getting better all the time, and North, what do we need to know more of? Well, I, I think 
um, this is one thing that's always, it, it's really started to, to bother me or, or worry me, I guess. And, and I know you're going to get to the W, but, um, I think we need continuing education. And right now, you know, in a university, you get students for two, three years, two years, whatever it is, wherever you go, and different countries are different, I know. But, and then if the, the requirement for master's degrees and continuing education is not there. So teachers are going to have to become consumers of, of, of knowledge somewhere. And I think that's probably going to come from on their own, essentially. So in, in the PEAT program, I think we need to, in, in teacher education, we need to educate them to become better at finding, consuming knowledge, not just via social media, but other places online or in readings or other, and find what they need and educate them. Because if we can educate them in an undergraduate program, then they become lifelong learners if they haven't learned that yet. If we only take three years to teach them all the things that we want them to know and they don't become educated, then, then they're done. They're going to be the same as, as Bob always says, you teach one year 20 times and they're going to teach the same. They're not going to be evolving like Bob talked about with his evolution of understanding or what he thought teaching should be. So I think that's what we need. Yeah, to, to need to know uh, how to educate pre-service teachers to be educated consumers. Yes, well said. And, and Bob? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I certainly agree with everything Aaron said. Um, and when you talk about educated consumers, I, I think, first of all, I think if, if you're going to continue to improve, it's an internal drive, not an external motivation. Um, great teachers become great because I, I remember when I first started teaching I wanted to be a really good teacher. And the more I taught, the more I wanted to become an even better teacher. I've always had the drive and I care more about education today than I did when I started. I'm certainly uh, never been a, a guy who says, well, you know, I just pick up my paycheck. I, I've always wanted to be the best and, and I still want to be the best teacher uh, I can be. So I, I think uh, if you're going to continue to improve, it's going to have to be internally driven, number one. And then you have to filter. And I have no problem with an educated consumer going out. In fact, I, I encourage it. Um, and, and seeing both sides of the issue and deciding what works in my scheme of plans and what doesn't work. And sometimes when I th see things that are so far off base, um, I say, well, you know, I, I don't know where that person's coming from, but they'll never get through my filter. Um, because each of us is responsible for our own filter and, and allowing what comes in there to make us a better teacher. So I'm a great believer in, in learning the skills that it takes to filter out what's good and what isn't good. And I'll tell you, um, I think if you're really going to improve, you get out the videotape camera and you look at yourself day after day, year after year, because you slip. You slip all the time. It's, it's been said that you reach your peak as a teacher at seven years. And then from that point on, most teachers go downhill a little bit at a time. Um, if you're looking at a videotape and you have others look at a videotape of you, you'll improve in a hurry, I guarantee you. Um, but nobody wants to look at their teaching just like nobody wants to listen to their voice. So um, if you're going to continue to improve as a teacher, get out the video camera, get out the audio camera and start taking a look at yourself and, and how you look when you talk to students and, and how you behave when you're trying to teach a skill, etc. cetera. Um, I, I'm a huge believer that greatness comes because a person internally pursues greatness. Yeah, that's a great point, uh, especially about the video analysis, self-analysis of our own teaching and, and really needing to understand and know more how we can convince teachers that this is a, a really great strategy to, to improve on their teaching. So if we were to slide over to what excites you about the profession, Aaron? Um, I think... Um it, it, what's exciting to me is, is one of the things that I think we've come a, a way since I've been in the field of coming together on this idea that 
physical activity promotion is not the only thing. It's not like we're just trying to get kids active at recess during physical education, but physical activity promotion and some will argue physical literacy, but that's what we are as a field. What we're trying to do is provide kids with the skills, knowledge, and attitude to be active for the rest of their lives. And I think we've come together much better than we used to. I mean, it used to be pretty fractured that, no, we're not about physical activity. We're about skills. And if you ask enough questions, eventually people want the, 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 the teachers and the scholars and the academics wanted students to be skilled so they would be active. So we're coming to that realization. And, and I think we're starting to move from that realization onto this, some of this affective and motivation and things like that, that I think help us as a field to have, like Bob said, we don't, but we never have a message. And so I think that gives us an idea of, of a common theme, which is to me exciting because then we can have discussions on how best to do that. Yeah, that's a good point. And Bob? Um, I think I get excited in that I'm starting to see a little bit of our profession actually doing planning and, and designing curriculums and, and making decisions about where they're going rather than just rolling out the ball. Um, we've rolled out the ball forever. And I said uh, on one of my podcasts, one of my PE huddles recently, I said, you know, um, go ahead and, and and plan ahead. Tell your principal what you're going to do. Show them what you're going to do. And I got a letter back from a, a teacher who said, you know, I planned and my principal just thought I was brilliant. And she said, I can't tell you how much difference that's made in how I feel about the profession. We, we need to be ahead of the game. I mean, I look at coaching and coaches do some of the very best teaching I've ever seen. They know at 421 what they're going to be doing. They know at 427 that they're going to go into this drill. And they plan everything, every little piece they plan about coaching. And then it comes to PE and there's no planning whatsoever. I don't think we can be great at what we do until we know where we're going and what we're doing, what works and what doesn't work. How can you improve if you don't know where you are? If you don't have a roadmap to success, how do you know when you ever succeed? So I think I get excited then. I'm starting to see uh, some of the younger teachers really start to take seriously about where they're going and what they want to do and to have a plan. That's exciting. And I, I think there's a good bunch of young professionals on the way who really want to do well. The crisis is sometimes that uh, a lot of people in teacher training haven't taught themselves. And so they don't have a feeling when they train new teachers. And uh, if, if I could have one thing that would excite me to no end, it would be that anybody that trains future teachers has to have teaching experience. And I'm sure Aaron could tell you the story when he came to me and said he wanted to go earn a doctorate. And I said, that's great. What kind of teaching experience do you have? And he said, uh, well, uh, I haven't taught in the schools. And I said, then I won't take you. And I knew he was a good person. He's probably the best doctoral student I've ever had. And I knew he was a good person. He went on his own, went to Texas, taught two years. And then I took him and I think his performance is, speaks for itself. But my point is that there's a crisis in teacher training as well. And I can't get excited about where we're going in profession until I get excited about the people who are training teachers to go forward in our profession. And sometimes I worry when I have someone who's never been in a classroom and in a gymnasium training our teachers. I think it's absolutely mandatory. And if I were in charge of the, any university department, it, it would be that if you're going to train teachers, you have to have public school experience or private school, uh, whatever. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And that's, that's your worry right there. That's West worry uh, that is. And, and making sure that the teacher trainers do have experience and, and having been in the, in, in the trenches so that they're in a position to um, deliver um, pedagogical strategies based on their experiences teaching in the trenches for, for many years, hopefully, you know, so Aaron, what are your worries? 
Um, just to piggyback that, I will say my students in, at the university, their favorite stories that I tell of, from my teaching are not my successes. It's when I got my lunch eaten. And, and, but I'm guessing those are probably the things they remember as well. And, and I have plenty of, I've had plenty of lunch eating stories. I didn't eat my lunch for a long time at, at when I started teaching. So did I. Had, I had three and four year olds when I started. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting, um, my worries are, 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 are probably more than I have. I think some of it is this non-educated consumers. Um, I think it's getting better. I, I think in, in general, we, some of the, what Bob talked about where we jump from topic to topic to topic and is because we have kind of this low self-esteem as a field. Like it's just, we need to, we need to justify our existence beyond what we do in physical education. And, and, and I, that worries me. Um, I think we have to understand as well that, and this is one thing I spend a lot of time with teacher education students is you have to understand that most of your kids don't love physical education or love physical activity like you did. And, you know, they're majors in, in kinesiology and health promotion at our university. So everybody around them loves activity. And I said, but think about those friends of yours that don't. And we have to get to that. And, and I think we have to understand that. And, and I, I heard a, a professor talk a long time ago that when we look at physical activity promotion efforts, whether whatever angle we're taking, and when we do work with the people that we don't invite to the table are the people that think we're nuts and that hate physical activity and don't want any part of that. And those are the people we need to hear from. But as educators, those are the people we need to address and, and, and be cognizant of. And my, I know I'm not supposed to have a lot of worries, but my last worry is do we as physical educators have this vision beyond our gymnasium? Are we just worried about the best cues for throwing or are we, and even are we worried about even our own curriculum or, or the big picture, what we're really trying to do in that vision? Again, some of this, as, as Bob alluded to, falls back to Pete, the physical education teacher educators. We really need to push forward on this. Um, so those are my worries. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I guess I want to go into a, a worry of mine um, just to segue into the end of the show. And, and it's, you know, like I have been in, in my career, I've been lucky to be able to use social media to connect with others. And Aaron, I wouldn't have met you if it wasn't for social media. And and then obviously, Bob, I met you through Aaron, right? So um, I've met a lot of great people and great educators through social media that have really been a, a positive influence on my own practice when I was teaching. Um, and social media has taken off, you know, and I, I think when we look at Twitter, for example, there is no subject area that is more represented on social media than phys ed. You know, like I know that there's a math presence and there's a literacy presence, but there are a lot of teachers, uh, phys ed teachers on Twitter. And one of the things that I'm concerned about is, is teachers who are very proud of what they do and they have the very best of intentions, but there are no filters that they're posts go through so they just simply put up these posts about what they feel is best teaching practice as an experienced educator i can see that their heart is in the right place but the pedagogical practice i think is a bit questionable um, so i guess my question is how can we better use social media to promote good practice and um you know just to kind of share your thoughts so bob yeah um you know i, th I think you did a good job of, of laying out the fact that there is a very positive side to social media and, and all of you know i use it with a pe idol and i Twitter and that sort of thing. So it, it can have a, a positive thing. Um, I don't see social media as being important because you get the most hits or, or the most response or you retweeted the most times. And I think some people get into it for that. And I think it's also, uh, you, you have to ask yourself, you know, why am I doing this? What's my purpose in doing this? And and the the one part of it that bothers me is is 
you said it, Andy, you, you mentioned the word filter. There is no filter on what goes through there. And it's one of the reasons I said earlier in the podcast, we have to teach people to be good consumers. And, you know, one of my colleagues, Chuck Corbin, always talked a lot about quackery in the profession uh, and how, you know, going back hundreds of years, there's, there's always been quackery where we sell people something on the physical side. The reason there's a lot of people in PE on Twitter and on the social media is because we've got a performing art and it's out there for everybody to see. And that's much more uh, exciting than looking at a math problem done a different way or something. So um, I, I think you raise a good point and I think we need to start educating students uh, at all levels on you know, make sure you don't believe everything, just like someone told you when you were younger, don't believe everything you read in the newspaper or in a magazine. Uh, we have to continue to do that kind of, of teaching. And then as professionals, make sure when you put something up, you understand that there's such disparity and difference among teachers that what you say may be good for some and not for others, but it's not a social game of trying to get the most followers. In fact, uh, you know, that borders on foolishness to me. Yeah, Bob, I, I, um, that resonates with me. And when I, again, I go back to seeing very well-intentioned teachers put work out there and, and, um, you know, it's just, they post a video, but there is no explanation. And of course, Twitter doesn't allow for an explanation, but if you're going to put up a video, then at least take 10 to 15 seconds to ex explain the context of your teaching and what you're hoping to achieve through this learning experience rather than just post a video and say, my kids loved it. And that's my big concern is that there needs to be context behind everything you put out. Um, yeah. So Aaron, uh, what about you? Yeah, I one of my, I think it might have been my first blog I ever wrote for Gopher was called Twitter is Dumb. And and my big concern at the time, and it still is, is that there's no refereeing process. And as as someone in the academic world that publishes, you know, that's that's how you're raised, is that everybody you have to filter and, and you have to get what you want to say somewhat approved by others that it's not this statement that has no rationale. And, and so I think that's important. The thing that, and, and this is one of the things that, that, as you can probably tell, I learned from Bob as well, is that teaching is so personal. And so when you put something on Twitter that has to do with your teaching, it makes any kind of criticism really, really hard. And I think that's one of the things I'd like to see us get better. I don't have a solution for it on Twitter is to be able to challenge each other and ask questions without hurting feelings. And, and again, I'm not, I'm not a hurt feelings, but a, a, a without a, a pissing people off, basically. Because if you ask one question about a, about a tweet, I mean, it, a lot of people, it really pisses them off. And it, it's just a genuine concern or genuine question. And I think that's one of the reasons we don't have as much discourse on physical on, on Twitter is because no one challenges things. And I think some of it is. And I'm very guilty of this. You can ask Bob and all are working of being of having rightitis, which means I think I'm right all the time. And that seems to be what when you post something on Twitter, it's it, hopefully it's not about I'm being right and I'm just I want everybody to do it. It, it should be about I'm sharing. I want to be better. And so and you can tell a lot about that by someone by looking at their Twitter description and, and what they're there for. If they're here, they say they're here to share ideas. That means they're not there to learn. And that doesn't necessarily mean um, what you're looking for. So I think that, and then having that vision with respect to social media is, is being able to take some criticism, being able to look at your ideas and say, you know, again, I guess, cause I come from a world where, you know, 20% of publications are accepted and 80% are rejected. So I've gotten plenty of rejections in my life that it doesn't, I, I like that, but I, I think if we can start to, to, to have those discussions, I think that uh, would help the use of social media and help us become educated consumers. And Andy, if I could just uh, kind of bring that to a close, um, you know, what we do with social media and, and a whole lot of, of media on television, newspapers is, is cherry pick. In other words, we go out and we pick what we want to hear and what we want to see. And here's the problem. Then social media isn't educating you. It's only reinforcing the beliefs you had already. And if you really want to change, I force myself 
Uh, yes, I have a pol political orientation, and it would be easy for me to read just articles that support that orientation, but I force myself to look at the other side. For example, school opening. I, I read about why people want, and I understand both sides. And, and to be honest with you, I don't have a clear-cut answer for uh, the right thing to do on that one. But if you cherry-pick and you, you look on Twitter or newspapers or professional organizations anywhere for things that you already believe in, you're not learning. You're only reinforcing what you already know. And, and you know, if it's wrong, you're going farther down that path. So, um, you know, life is full of many options. And you know, as a friend told me, there's three sides to every story. Uh, and he was being a bit facetious, but you have to be careful about that. Yeah, and, and the cherry pickers. Remember the cherry pickers at recess when we were in grade school? You know, they would just hang around the net and pop, you know, pop the puck in. <laughs> They're not working on any skills. They aren't working on any skills, like moving up and down, dice, and, you know, working on open space. Love that. They just You're still pissed that. about that, Andy. Yeah, love that, love that Canadian analogy, too. Yeah, I do too. I listen, Bob, Bob, when he said net, were you thinking basketball? Yeah. <laughs> well, he, and, and the same would apply, right? But, uh, yeah, sure exactly. would. But one, sure would. One of the things I want to say is I, I, you know, everything you guys are saying about uh, social media and the filter, um, I came across a, a picture that I used. So, I, I would run workshops where I would I would say yes, social media can be a really good thing for PE teachers, and then I would connect the PE teachers in the workshop to PE teachers that I felt were really giving back and open to this kind of idea of critical feedback. And the picture that I found to represent this was a light switch, and it, the, on the the picture of the light switch. The um, title of it was Emotions, and the light switch was off. So that idea that we have to turn off our emotions and be able to um, depersonalize critical feedback because it's not about us. We have to turn our emotions off in order to uh, be open to critical feedback to make us grow and learn. And if our emotions are on we're not going to be able to accept critical feedback. So, and Aaron, as you said, 80% of your papers get turned turned down. So you learn quickly that you need to turn off the emotions and it's not about your self identity. It's about growing and learning, right? Yeah, that's good. I like that. Yeah. So I think that's, that's what I just wanted to close off with is that if we are going to get better, we really have to depersonalize critical feedback and, and accept it and create an open dialogue, you know, and that's, that's the big thing. So I want to, I slide over to close the show to, to give um, both of you a chance to talk about the PE huddle and what you're hoping to, uh, I, I don't know how many episodes you've done, so you can let us know that, but just for the listeners out there where they can find the PE huddle, how you get your ideas, what you're hoping to um, what type of thinking you're hoping to spark through the PE Huddle podcast. So, Bob, I'll, I'll start with you. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Um, we've done a dozen huddles to date. We do them every other week. And, you know, we started out because of COVID and felt that teachers need support. Um, the, the one thing we've stayed away from is we don't focus on games and activities and, you know, the newest, uh, the newest uh, uh, fitness routine, et cetera. But we stay on things uh, that are motivated, uh, that are dealing with uh, emotions and how to, how to cope and how you can open up school and uh, do you worry about catching COVID while you're teaching, you know, things like that. But they always sidetrack into curriculum and, and other areas, and we love that. Um, uh, so the, the PE huddle is supported by Gopher Sport, and you can go to uh, gophersport.com. It's that simple, and then you can look for the, the, the PE huddle, or you can just get on the Internet and search for the PE huddle, and it'll 
take you right to it. And uh, I appreciate uh, you mentioning it. And there, all the, the dozen huddles we've done are available. Uh, I usually take the last five minutes to give a few words of, uh, of thought about where we are and try to assure teachers. Uh, I think a big role I feel right now is to support teachers in this trying time. I mean, let's be honest, uh, with COVID, PE teachers are are some of the highest risk uh, teachers. And so uh, obviously I have great concern for them. Yeah, that's a really good point. And uh, Bob, I'm, I'm lucky enough to do some uh, virtual consulting with uh, a school in Singapore and Korea right now. And these are the conversations that we're having. So I'm really going to turn them on to your podcast and, uh, you know, because these are the things, even though it's the school has, op- their schools have opened up to um, face-to-face teaching and learning, they're really trying to manage their way around that. But what I respect about these teachers is it's not just doing activities. They're actually trying to create really meaningful, genuine, authentic learning experiences despite the circumstances and looking at it as though it's an opportunity rather than uh, doom and gloom, you know, like really being positive about it and saying the, the world has not experienced this. Everybody is a rookie right now and they're trying to figure this shit out. So it's this idea of just being looking at it as an opportunity. So Aaron, what do you want to add about the PE huddle? No, I just think it's, it's it's a great it's a great resource for teachers simply because I think in a normal situation physical education teachers seem to be on an island sometimes physically out in a school in a gym or outside where no one's out but right now even with all the attention being given to COVID it seems like it's left on the outside and that's where I think that the PE huddle gives a, a little bit of a cover fills a void where they're getting some positive physical education specific reinforcement and the knowledge that like you just said, everybody's in this for the first time and everybody's in the same boat and everybody's struggling with it and no one has it figured out. So don't worry about thinking you have it figured out and just be open to learn. And I think that's what the PE huddle is offering. That's awesome. So dialogue, you know? Yes. Yeah, that's, that's great. So gentlemen, uh, let's turn the videos back on. So for the listeners, we had some, uh, technical difficulties, uh, which will require a little bit of editing, which is fine. So I know that we might have lost uh, some some gems in this conversation due to technical difficulties with uh, Bob being in Arizona, Aaron being in Kentucky, and me being smack dab in the desert in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> so um, to close off, where can people find you personally on social media? Uh, at Pangrazy and uh, on Twitter, and and then you can see all the work I've done for Gopher. Uh, at in fact, I was just looking that up. I think it's pd.gophersport.com. So okay, great, thanks, Bob. I Aaron, think, I think you can find uh, right there, Andy. Okay, and, and then, thank you, by the way, Andy. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Mine is the same old story we had last time. It's B E I G H L E at uky.edu or Aaron Beatley uh, at Aaron Beatley on Twitter. I think I'm the only one. I think Bob's the only one too. So if you Google us, you'll find us. There's a, there's a state trooper in Kentucky with the same name, but I don't think he has any social media presence or anything. (laughs) Okay, great. I really appreciate it. And uh, you know, I'd love to do it again sometime a few months down the road after we see what's happening. I mean, our school here we're supposed to open for face-to-face limited class size, a hybrid model. That's as of yesterday, <laughs> I, you know, um, but the, the thing is, and this is what, you know, I, I was speaking to a teacher who has moved into PE after teaching in the classroom for 10 years, but before teaching in the classroom, he taught kids with, autism and Asperger's for a number of years. So this guy is skilled. He knows how to manage kids. And now he's all, you know, really worried about, oh, I have to teach PE this year. Oh, and there's COVID. And I'm like, dude, if there's anybody in the world that's equipped to manage kids, 
you have that skill. Now just accept that you're a rookie along with the 25-year veteran who's in the department, right? So it's this idea that we are rookies. And there, then there's the sense of vulnerability in saying, even though I have all of these years of experience, I don't have the answers right now, but I am open and receptive and taking on a, curi- a mindset of curiosity uh, to, to figure this out and to have the, the important discussions needed to, to move forward in, in an unprecedented time. Well said. Good. Yeah. Good. yeah love it. So uh, I'm just going to close off the show, but uh, just stay on the line and then uh, we'll just have a side chat uh, for a couple minutes. So thank you very much for tuning into this episode with Dr. Aaron Beatley and Dr. Bob Pangrazy. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes.